welcome everybody to the Secure Podcast, our our inaugural uh, session, and I'm super happy to introduce a couple of really close colleagues of mine. Uh, I am Charles Latimer, Chief Health and Wellness Officer at FinFit, and today we have Matt Ball from the Financial Health Network and Tim O'Neill from True North, and we'll be talking about building a financially resilient workforce in 2023 and beyond. Uh, I'm going to hand it over to Tim uh, to introduce himself. We're just going to have a conversation today, and uh, and let's just kick it off. Thanks, Charles. It's great to be here and uh, fun to be doing the inaugural podcast with you both. Um, You know, as you mentioned, I'm with True North Companies, and I work in what's called risk and workforce solutions and really partner with primarily employers and their people strategy to take a look at how you can impact the cost of risk for the organization. And I really became interested in the link between worker and workforce financial stress and the impact on the organization, having seen that firsthand. I spent the first 20 years of my career uh, in human resources and you know, really saw the impact that this can have on a workforce. So really excited to be here today and talk about some of those new strategies. Terrific. Matt? Yeah, Tim and I have a very similar background. So I've been at the Financial Health Network. We're a national nonprofit. Uh, and the leading authority on financial health, both in financial services, as well as the team that I lead in the workplace. And uh, I've spent my career in and around the workplace. I was an executive at Prudential, uh, helping them and their customers build financial health programs. I was an HR executive like Tim for many years, and I'm a recovering labor and employment lawyer. And so uh, through those collective experiences, I've really seen the power and opportunity to uh, help organizations reframe how they think about their workforce to really live into the statements they make about it being the most important asset. Um, and to me, that really starts with understanding the financial lives as that's where most folks gain access to these benefits is through the workplace. Um, and then of course, it's just deeply personal to me, you know, having uh, been the first person in my family to go to college um, and really seeing the financial struggles of my parents and other folks in my life and really believing that we can just do a lot better um, and that there are ways to do that. But it starts with understanding the needs of people and then designing programs and solutions that actually solve those needs and challenges. That's terrific. I, I tell you, I, what I think is super unique about both of you is that you are both have a, a rich history as HR executives and you've emerged as thought leaders over time. I, I'm really curious just to hear you, you, both of your insights on what is it in terms of financial wellness? I, I get feel this question all the time you know, what is financial wellness? Is is there a sort of standard by which we should measure ourselves? And and what does it look like? I mean, you know, when it, when it arrives, and I know that you both have really rich histories in in not only defining that, but also knowing when you see it. Yeah, you know, in terms of financial well-being, um, that can mean a lot of different things. But in all honesty, I think for an individual, having the day-to-day and paycheck-to-paycheck liquidity to be able to pay their bills, put food on the table, um, have a little bit of spending money, I think is really the foundation. And, you know, when you look at the statistics across America, there's a good percentage of Americans that are really struggling today even to do that basic level. And so I think that's really the foundation of financial well-being 
is to get there. And um, really, employers, I think, are in a terrific place to be able to help their workforce through a lot of these different strategies. But beyond just day-to-day needs, I think being able to start building up an emergency savings account is critically important when it comes to financial well-being. Um, you know, not only having your day-to-day needs met, but life is going to throw unexpected things at you. You know, when your car breaks down or you have an unexpected medical bill um, early in the year with a high deductible health plan, those types of things. And so I think, um, you know, having a, a baseline level of savings can be really, really critical. And then I'm a big believer in creating uh, intergenerational wealth. And, you know, I don't mean having a yacht somewhere. I just mean not only you know being able to sustain yourself, but be able to then pass that on uh, to your family members and your kids and help them go to college or those types of things and, and get access to better opportunities than what you could have. So for me, um, when someone can have those three pieces working together um, and really feel like they've got a solid plan for when the unexpected happens, um, that can put them in a good state of financial well-being. So that's where I'd start. Matt, how would you riff there? Yeah, uh, I, fundamentally, I think it's an outcome. It's not. Uh, it's not inputs necessarily. Inputs direct outcomes, but I think ultimately, and this is actually one of the challenges I think workplaces have is they think about financial wellness in terms of the programs they put in place as opposed to the outcomes they're trying to achieve. And so I really see financial wellness and financial health as the outcome you're trying to achieve. We have a definition at the Financial Health Network, which is financial health comes about when someone has their daily systems operate, including the workplace, in a way that allows them to build resilience and thrive. Now, um, that could include an emergency savings program. I know we're going to talk a lot about that. There's plenty of evidence of the impact of those things. But I think employers waste a ton of money on solutions that don't actually improve financial health and wellness or that don't actually address the needs of their people. And then they throw their arms and say, well, we did financial wellness. And my answer to them is, you didn't. You put a program in, but financial wellness is the destination and the journey, not necessarily the specific benefit um, that you're offering. It's how do you understand the actual lives of your people and how do you calibrate that? And of course, we have a measurement framework on all of those things that we use to guide that. But focusing on the outcome you're driving toward, to me, that's what financial wellness is. So what does it work? I mean, you, you know, you said but a bunch of stuff out there that doesn't work. And, and yeah. you know, I, I think we, we confront that all the time. Yeah. I mean, how much I, I, we don't have much time to talk about all the things that don't work. But so so listen, I think I think there are some things that we have to have from a baseline perspective. And Tim talked about those things. Right. If folks simply don't make enough money to pay their bills there, you can't budget or fintech your way out of that deficit. And so if folks simply don't make enough money. Um, and if an employer's compensation practices are such that they don't understand what it takes to make someone earn that wage, then you can put the best programs in place. No one will use them because it's not directly meeting them. So there's sort of a baseline stability that goes into that. And that's usually in the form of wages, compensation practices, et cetera. Then you get to the sort of next level, which is really this sort of short-term liquidity, right? Do people have access to whether the inevitable financial shocks that they're going to experience? Uh, that's where an emergency savings, other liquidity-based solutions may be impactful to sort of do that. As you get a level up, then you got to think about the opposite side of the ledger, which is some of the additional costs that people absorb in their life. So this ranges anything from, you know, healthcare costs. Number one cause of bankruptcy in the United States is healthcare. Don't know if you saw the chart that came out from some analysis this week, looking at where you see medical debt, particularly in the southern states, driving bankruptcy and poor financial and FICO credit scores. That's directly related to a number of different factors, uh, but all fundamentally around the ability for people to afford the inevitable 
issues in their life, like getting sick. Um, I think as you go up to that, then you start to get into sort of the longer term components. So whether this is retirement planning um, or certainly Rutgers University has done exceptional research validating, to your point, Tim, about intergenerational wealth. We know that one of the most impactful ways to you know, establish intergenerational wealth is employee ownership and making sure that employees and companies that have equity programs make those broadly available uh, because that's actually one of the ways because of the way our tax system is structured where access to that sort of capital is one of the best and most effective ways to not only generate intergenerational wealth, but if you're really committed to solving problems like pay disparities, um, you know, disparities in racial categories, employee ownership is an effective way to do that. So I think those are things that we know have impact. And then there's a lot of other things that it really depends on the design, the needs. So you think about coaching programs, education-based programs. There's a new meta-analysis that just came out in 2022 that sort of reframed um, financial education programs and really seeing where they're the most effective and the level of investment it takes to make education programs effective, which is a higher bar than what most employers are able to do because um, you're not going to take people off of a line to do you know 30 hours of in-classroom education in order to bring them up. That's just not the way it works. So, And I think we can all agree that just a, a static set of online courses that you have to dig through 12 pages to find is probably not an effective. Were you cutting me off, Charles? Because I was couldn't <laughs> stand it. Or is- hey, hey, listen. Yes, yes, I was. No, I was. <laughs> no, no. I mean, no. Seriously, this is this is the good stuff. Not cutting you off at all, but I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, we 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 rub up against this all the time, where where you know, begin a financial wellness conversation. Say, well, you know, my uh, record keeper has courses and calculators and that, you know, and coaching. And, and yet we also know that two thirds of the workforce are living paycheck to paycheck and they are, you know, in fight or flight. And in that fight or flight framework, it is nearly impossible to jump over and actually sort of triage and help somebody through that. But, but I, I also, you brought up a really interesting point, Matt, which is, you know, that financial stability baseline. And it gets very quite complex when you're talking about geographic uh, diversity of a workforce. And Tim, I know you've done a lot of, of really hands-on work with acquisitions, bringing in global uh, work communities. And so how did you all manage that? How did you manage ensuring financial stability across such a diverse workforce so that you can begin the conversation because then the next piece is then utilization. And I know that you have a lot of experience there as well. Yeah, most definitely. I think, you know, having the right um, type of program for the right person at the right time, I hesitate using the word program, but that's the best I can really think of is, you know, everybody's at a different place on their financial journey and certainly everybody's at a different place in being ready to make lifestyle changes. And so for us, we really focused um, the delivery on three different areas. You know, really the highest and most broad level is awareness. Um, You know, simply saying, hey, uh, did you know that, you know, this is National Savings Month or whatever it might be? Oh, I didn't think about that. Uh, Beyond awareness, then you go a little bit deeper and a little bit narrower around education. And so it's not just National Savings Month, but why is savings important and what's a good amount of savings and those types of things. So you have fewer education campaigns, but they go a little bit deeper than awareness. And then finally you go to behavior change, which is the most narrow and the most deep. And, you know, if you can get somebody to make, you know, even two or three positive behavior changes around finances in a year, 
you're doing an awesome job. And so really thinking about, you know, from awareness to education to the behavior change, um, how do you assess your workforce? How do you understand what topics are of greatest need and interest across the population as a whole? And how is the level of financial stress changing across your workforce year over year? And how is that tying into some of your top cost drivers, uh, things such as turnover, uh, medical pharmacy, work comp claims, those types of things. So for us, um, we definitely didn't want to take a one-size-fits-all approach. We wanted to have the right program for the right person at the right time and really leverage data to meet individuals where they're at. And, and we had five unions that were part of the, the shop where I worked, and even they were on board because they're like, there's really no ulterior motive here other than helping the individuals. So that was a pretty cool deal. I, I think there's an opportunity, and I, I'd love to get both of your feedback on this. There's an opportunity, I believe, to connect a story around, uh, one, outcomes, but the data that connects to those outcomes and telling a story. Because I, I think we all agree, if, if you're looking at the bottom third of the workforce, uh, a just humane income, a livable income, it, it, that, that's got to be, I mean, just the get out of the gates. I mean, that's the first thing you have to do. And I feel like as an industry, I, I feel responsible to help organi- organizations see how they can save money in areas like uh, risk mitigation, um, safety incidences, productivity, presenteeism, absenteeism, you know, you know, Tim, in your field of uh, in transportation, you, I know you all insure a lot of transportation, motor carriers. If you're driving a 50,000 pound truck down the road, you, you, you know, sleep deprivation isn't a really good idea. And, and so I, I, I think if we can make an economic case uh, and really have clear line of sight into outcomes uh, that, that impact the expense line, th- then I, I think we could, you know, maybe make a case of diverting some of those savings over to increasing income. And I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think you're exactly right, Charles. Um, you know, a lot of times as I talk to HR executives, you know, one of the things they'll say is, well, you know, our budgets are tight. I don't have money to invest in additional per employee per month solutions. And they really focus on how much more money it might cost to do something. And what I try to do is I think about those type of conversations because a ton of employers are in that boat. uh, And I know how that feels being in that seat, you know, leading global benefits for so many years. Um, I really like to look at the total cost of risk for the organization. I mean, if you think about as a company, the amount of money you spend and invest every single year on people, which most companies say are the most important asset. You look at payroll, the cost of benefits, insurance, training and development. And unfortunately, when somebody leaves the cost to replace them, that is a massive, massive investment every single year. And so I really like to talk to companies about, you know, how do you know that you're maximizing that investment? And you mentioned turnover in the transportation industry, Charles. You know, industry average turnover for the open over the road trucking industry is 89%. So you might have a company that has a thousand trucks and maybe they're a little bit worse than average and they hire 1,200 drivers a year. Um, there's a real cost not only to go out and find and train additional people, but the time the truck isn't transporting those goods. And, you know, it's not just transportation. Um, you know, if you look at healthcare, for example, the use of high cost agency staffing. Or if you have a small business that can't be open as many hours or has to shut down operating hours because they don't have enough people. So, 
if you look at what's driving risk and cost in your business and really think about how to mitigate that um, so someone doesn't leave to go down the road for 50 cents more an hour, um, we believe that looking at it that way can be a much, much easier way to start looking at what you're already investing versus trying to ask for additional investment and ignoring what you're already putting in. 100% agree. Matt, what, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I'd, I'd, uh, I think Tim brings up some really important points, which is connecting the investment in your people to business outcomes. And I think uh, for different industries, that may manifest in different ways. I think another way it manifests in healthcare, for example, is hospital readmission rates due to medical errors, which directly impacts reimbursement rates for hospitals. And we know with great certainty that staff in hospitals, particularly frontline staff that are financially strained, lack the ability to actually cognitively focus because of the deleterious impacts of financial stress, which directly relates and correlates to hospital errors, which reduces uh, those things. And so I think that's like one muscle, frankly, that like HR still is trying to build. Because I think a lot of times, even the most sophisticated HR folks struggle to translate how the investment in their people manifest in business outcomes. So that's, I think, one piece. I think the other piece, however, and this is why I love Tim and the, the True North folks is, you know, I think Tim Tim and um, is unique some, and somewhat in the broker community, to be honest with you. Because I think Tim brings a perspective of, I guess, risk is a part of the calculation. But the goal of your program is to enrich and enliven and, and ensure the flourishing and well-being of people that then reduces risks in these other areas. And I think too oftentimes we hear companies that think about and make decisions that are filtered almost exclusively through a risk lens, as opposed to understanding how improving the lives of people, which are the key input into most businesses, manifests in better outcomes for the business. Um, I think that's actually a, a mind shift change for a lot of HR leaders is to not view their decisions on people as risks to be mitigated, but as investments in human flourishing and well-being that will inevitably lead to better business outcomes. And you've seen this, for example, in companies like PayPal, um, you know, a company that we've had the pleasure of being able to work with. Where you look at MIT just did a case study over the last several years of PayPal really spending the time to understand the needs of their people, um, particularly those that are the most financially vulnerable. Not everybody at PayPal is an engineer. Um, you know, they have service centers and hourly staff. Um and really investing in those folks and being intentional about setting a marker towards the investments in people, seeing tremendous business outcomes, um, and also improved engagement, reduced turnover, all the things that Tim talked about. So it's both of shifting the way that HR leaders think about this investment, better connecting it to the business outcomes, and then also having the patience, frankly, because this is not going to turn the ship overnight. Um, you know, it's a multi-year investment in people in order for those outcomes to really manifest. And so there's also that I think that is really important is giving it time to mature. So I, I have a I have a question that, that may may or not be spot on. I'm definitely not leading the witness here because it's an open ended question for me. Which is, are HR leaders the best stakeholder for championing financial wellness in an organization? If if not, is it is there a multifunctional approach? I don't know if it's at PayPal or elsewhere that industry leaders can point themselves towards as a best practice. Have you seen anything out there or, or would you have any recommendations given your experience as HR leaders? Yeah. HR plays a critical role and like, there's no getting around that. I mean, they are often have the direct accountability for making the benefit strategies, setting the recommendations, thinking about the total rewards, 
Um, I think where there's opportunity for HR is how do you better educate your peers in the C-suite about this work? Um, and that's where I think there's a big gap. I'll give you some examples. We just published this morning with our partners at Just Capital, impacts and outcomes from the Worker Financial Wellness Initiative, which is an initiative we started to get America's largest companies to assess the financial health of their people. And then uh, that was it. We didn't have any action recommendations, but it's naturally led to action because what we found, many C-suite leaders have no idea what's happening with their people. None. They get some spreadsheet that says we're doing these things at market. Therefore, we are, we'll do a little bit more so we can always say we're above market. But looking only at market inputs is, by definition, uh, missing the impact of those benefits and the how they show up in people's lives, not what benefits should be placed. And so what we've seen, for example, is about one out of every 176 workers is covered by this initiative and this partnership. We've seen companies, after doing these assessments, um, raise the wages for 250,000 hourly workers. We've seen 125,000 workers gain access to an emergency savings program. We've seen all new redesigns, expansion of programs for employee ownership. These were not things that we even went into the initiative recommending. We just wanted people to know. And so for us, that's the big gap. And it gets back to Tim's sort of three-pronged framework there of awareness education. It's not enough for HR to be aware of these things. <laughs> You've got to right. educate the leaders in the organization to get them to understand how it works. And every instance we've seen where that happens, we've seen good outcomes. And I, and I think Tim would probably probably agree with that. Yeah, I was going to say any executive champion, including a human resources executive, is a good champion for moving the initiative forward. But you absolutely have to have the C-suite involved. And I was just smiling as Matt was talking because I'm thinking if an executive in the C-suite can move from understanding a spreadsheet to connecting that to a people strategy around financial well-being and understanding how that people strategy can not only enrich the workforce, but can control what that line item is on the spreadsheet, that's going to give the companies that get it and bring that together a significant unfair competitive advantage. And that's what's so exciting for me because not very many companies are doing that today. And it's a huge opportunity. I think it is a huge opportunity as well. I mean, I, and, and I'm wondering what our responsibility as an industry is in terms of, of, of connecting those dots for HR leaders in, in terms of telling a data-driven, outcomes-based story that engages and compels the entire C-suite. And, and I, I know that they're pockets. I mean, I, I know we can point to, you know, the PayPals of the world and, and all that, but I, I don't know that there is literally, I mean, Tell me if I'm wrong. I, I don't know of a single um, program that focuses on outcomes-based uh, sort of stakeholder initiatives on the leadership level for HR executives so that they know how to effectively tell a financial wellness story uh, in the C-suite. Does something exist out there or is that an opportunity for someone to champion? I mean, you've just described my life's work, Charles. So. Um you know, I like to think that we're seeking to do that at the Financial Health Network. Obviously, we no one can do it alone. This really is about industry and partners to do that. Um, I think you, I think you're starting to see it manifest in interesting ways. So you're seeing it starting to show up in some of the ESG conversations, and I know those are fraught for a whole host of reasons. But that's certainly a place where you're seeing at least the investor community starting to pay more attention to sort of worker-based outcomes. 
Um, I think you're starting to see some interesting metrics development coming from the government. Um, you know, you saw early with the 10K for the, S- the, the SEC and some of the updated metrics there. Lots of work to be done there because some of these metrics still don't really get at the heart of what's happening in people's lives. But no, I think the the big missing thing as far as what I see um, is is sort of a consistency of understanding what works and for whom. Because I think that continues to be a massive missing piece. And listen, business leaders have to do that. They have to understand what the potential is that they're going to get back when they make an investment. Um, and while I believe that altruism should play a, a leading role in this, um, it's not always going to be the case. It just won't be. That's just not the way businesses operate today. So you have to also be always thinking for that evidence-based, recognizing no employer in their right mind is going to allow you to do a random control trial, five-year rigorous study to really get at some of those things. But there are lots of evidence bases that are emerging, and we know enough about what works. It's about focusing attention also. I think people get really distracted by all the different things that they could be doing as opposed to setting a course, executing, and staying very disciplined in, in, in what actually moves the needle. So what we need to do as an industry, and I mean this candidly, I mean we need to begin to scale the Matt Balls and Tim O'Neill's of the world. And and to be able to build that framework of success uh, for HR leaders, I mean, because that there's a there's a lot of there, there's a lot of opportunity to not only tell that story, but I think to highlight and illuminate some successes that are happening. And so I hope we can get ten thousand map balls out there and ten thousand Tim O'Neills. That'd be fun. A scary world. You just described a very scary world. <laughs> Pretty scary that. world. Pretty scary. scary. So. Let's say 5,000, Matt Ball. <laughs> so I'd sit over a, a series of questions ahead of time. And, and I, I think uh, a, a lot of them are, are things maybe I have my own opinions on, deeply embedded opinions. And what, what, what I love, got, I got back from both of you. Love these questions. Some just, you know, made, made my skin crawl. I wanted to, you know, pulling my hair out over here. I have no hair left to pull out, really. But I, I uh, so I'm curious, like, what, what what questions that I that I sent over like struck a chord with you uh, that that you would you know if you could hone in on and say listen this is is just scratching across a chalkboard for me I'm just curious to hear if anything in particular just kind of made you go cross-eyed you know I think um, the biggest one for me is um, as we think about you know so many factors outside the control of a company. It might be inflation. It might be a tight labor market. Um, Charles, as you said before, um, it really is forcing companies to act. Um, And those that don't are going to get left behind in terms of competing for workers and being able to keep up. Um, I was just speaking at a, a safety conference yesterday and I asked a standing room only group, um, you know, to what degree is a shortage of workers impacting you? And I'm not kidding you, 90, 95 percent of the hands in that room were raised. And so for me, nails on a chalkboard is, you know, there's a glaring problem. Um, there may be factors outside our control, but, you know, which employers are going to step up and take the lead and really knock over that first domino. So curious if that's what you're seeing as well and, and sort of rec- what, where you recommend companies start to think about, you know, how do we focus around these areas? Matt? Yeah, I mean, I lose my shit anytime someone brings up Secure 2.0. Um, yeah, yeah. What, why is that? Talk to me about well, it. Again. Well, 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 why don't you tell the audience, at least give it, you know, a 10,000-foot 
um, view of Secure 2.0 and why you lose your shit when you hear that? Yeah, so Secure 2.0, which follows Secure 1.0, attempts to do a couple of different things. And I don't, I won't pretend that I'm a full expert on all of it. But one is it seeks to uh, allow employers to create after-tax emergency savings vehicles through their retirement plans, including an auto-enroll feature to default folks into that. And there are certain restrictions on that. Um, it also sort of hardwires the Abbott Labs model to a certain extent. It gives employers the ability to do so where student loan contributions can um, trigger a elective contribution into a retirement plan, something that Abbott Labs did through a private letter ruling. And then it also provides some tax incentives for small businesses to um, create retirement plans, uh, to generate greater access uh, to those retirement plans. So on its surface, it sounds awesome. Um, but I think it falls very short in terms of its design. And um, I think time will tell to sort of think about that. But let me just tell you what sort of irks me about this. Um, I don't know how you can call an after-tax savings an emergency savings vehicle in a retirement plan. I'm just, I'm completely baffled that that qualifies as a definition of emergency savings. And I'll give you a couple of reasons why. Number one, there are limits on what you can contribute. I think it's a $2,500 limit to that. Um, and then it'll default you back to that. The other thing is, have you ever tried to get money out of a retirement plan? <laughs> Like it's intentionally hard. And that's not to say it should be easy outside of the plan. Uh, but the, the mechanics and the technicalities of doing that are going to be are going to be challenging, I think. The other thing, just from a behavioral perspective, like I work with a lot of record keepers. I think they're an important stakeholder in financial health and wellness. I'm not sure they even want people to start viewing their retirement plan as a place to actually go to draw money out of on short terms. And so I think there's a behavioral mental accounting problem. Um, with the design of that. Now, the path of least resistance, of course, if it gets more people saving short terms, I'm all for it. Like I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying it's a, it's a, it's a net negative. But the other thing is like, let's say you lost your job in the last couple of weeks while the market was down. That emergency savings you had in the retirement plan was probably tied up in some sort of market investment that was also down because of that. So the value of that savings is also greatly diminished by keeping it there. So what I'd like to see happen and what I'm hoping we can get either through regulation or through more legislation is the ability to do auto enrollment and out of plan emergency savings. I think that is a uh, massive opportunity. Um, I think that's a glaring uh, error, if you will, in sort of the legislative design. I'm not in Washington. I don't know anything about politics, but I'm not as bullish on Secure 2.0 being the bulwark of sort of solving these challenges as others are. The thing it has done that I am a fan of is it has certainly raised the the consciousness about emergency savings, and that's hugely important. Um, and I think you are seeing small businesses and others that are looking at out-of-plan solutions, in part because of the other thing that Secure is supposed to do. I'm just skeptical that small businesses are going to enter into pooled models or PEPs to start retirement plans. Now, Willis Towers Watson announced yesterday, I think, a new service to do that. That's great. I think we need more of that. But the small business, you know, leaders that we work with, um, like the amount of risk they have to take on to set up their retirement plan, the funding that it requires, especially with Secure 2.0 requiring auto enrollment into those plans for new businesses. Like it sort of doesn't always understand how small businesses manage cash flow on a day to day basis. So I'm not sure we're going to see the scale for that. Um, so, yes, it's an improvement. I generally am excited that it's raised the consciousness, but I just think it's going to fall short of actually solving the problems that it was designed to put out because it didn't it didn't go far enough to really recognize how people's financial lives are navigated, the fact that many people don't have access to workplace retirement plans and the incentives 
to do that, I'm not sure go far enough to actually scale access to retirement plans. So I just have a knee-jerk reaction to Secure 2.0. Again, I'm not against it. I'm glad they passed it. But boy, they didn't do enough. And I just fear we're going to be back looking at Secure 3.0 here in a couple of years. I'll tell you where I lost my mind on Secure 2.0. I'll just, I'll put it on the table, which is that they finally recognize that liquidity is is a problem in the workforce and, and made available the ability for anyone with a 401k to, without penalty, take $1,000 out and repay it over a three-year period. So great. Now we've solved liquidity for the part of the workforce that doesn't need liquidity. Awesome. Or not typically, not the 60% of the entire workforce that doesn't have access to a 401k. And, and, And the idea that that level of liquidity, you know, the emergency funding on the unexpected expense that is a 100% probability is not being addressed for the part of the workforce that's going to damage the most. You know, that you get the proverbial set of tires that need to be replaced. You don't have access to the liquidity wherever you are. And now that the federal government stepped in and says, yes, liquidity is a challenge. It's only solving that challenge for literally the part of the workforce that's typically not uh, pinned in in terms of need for short-term liquidity. So yeah, and also- it, it, just to just to add another thing that's sort of um you know there is absolutely no coverage for gig workers um in this right. law and as we continue to see the increase and rise in sort of independent work or gig work or whatever you want to call it that's a population that's growing that has virtually no access to these types of benefits and um i think that's going to continue to be a problem and we can debate the relative goodness or utility of gig work and other time trials but um, there just continues to be large swaths of the U.S. workforce that this that this act simply will not benefit. And so my biggest concern is it just hasn't gone far enough. Um, and uh, I fear that we're we're um, running out of runway and options as people are struggling today to gain access to these things. And it just doesn't help scale it. So, Tim, what, what, what do you think the you know, because I, I, I believe that these are blended solutions. It's a public private sector um, opportunity to stabilize the American workforce. Where, where, where do you see the role of record keepers and the fintechs of the world to step in and help close the gap in areas that I think Matt just, you know, obviously did a beautiful job articulating? You know, the, the big takeaway for me was Secure 2.0, a couple things. One, it's expected to generate an additional $40 billion in retirement savings for new plan participants over the next 10 years. So I think that in and of itself is a a noble thing. That's a good thing. Um, But to the point that you both made, um, it it largely ignores those that are gig workers or low earners that maybe, you know, can't be in a 401k plan, or even if they're eligible, they, they aren't, you know, in a place where they can contribute. And so no matter how much you auto enroll and auto escalate somebody that needs to pay for medication and electric bills and put food on the table, it can be very, very challenging. And so I think that's where, as you look at fintech and you look at, you know, some of the solutions, not everything can be done within a 401k plan. And I think that's the big takeaway, you know, as I listen to both of you and kind of formulate my thoughts as well, um, there has to be solutions for the lower two thirds of wage earners in the United States to really help them get at some of those liquidity issues to be able to establish a baseline level of savings for those week in and week out emergencies, and then really start to build that nest egg over time. And, and I just don't see that with Secure 2.0 at this point. 
So I actually kind of want to, um, I, I know we have probably 15 minutes left here, but I, so I, I kind of actually want to circle back into, into a complete circle here and go back to uh, a data-driven outcomes-based philosophy that can emerge. Because one of the things, you know, I, I probably sat in, as the two of you did as well, you know, maybe four or 500 calls this past year talking to HR leaders and, and leaders across different sectors and, and talking about a data-driven approach, whether we're discussing things like retention or, or you know, a reduction in absenteeism and presenteeism, or even extending into what I consider the gold standard to be uh, positive health outcomes, uh, you know, that come along with financial stability and the social determinants of health in terms of stabilizing housing and transportation and food, not only security, but sort of access to healthy uh, environments across each of those determinants. So now we, we, with all of that said, the first thing I hear, and Matt Ball and I, we've been arm wrestling with, with this for, for the last couple of years, which is first thing I hear is, well, yeah, I see the correlation, but not the causation. I, I, you know, So it really brings back this idea that everybody can kind of matador the real issue away by saying, Matt, I see a correlation, but you know, you got to prove causation to me. And I, I feel like, we're at a moment in time right now with with data structures, a, a clear line of sight to claim level data uh, it, on the healthcare side, being able to connect to things like safety incidents data, worker comp data, payroll data, uh, you know, the, the very venerable work that Financial Health Network does in terms of its Fin Health score and bringing all these pieces together. Because I, I tell you, on the 2024 edition of this, I want to stop talking about correlation and I want to start talking about how we really made some headways on the causation front. What, where do we need to go from here, Tim O'Neill, to make that final lap? And Matt, after we hear from Tim, I'd like to then talk about, you know, as an industry, how do we standardize these things so that we can three to five years from now, um, not have to talk about correlation anymore. We could talk about causation. You know, I was just talking to someone, Charles, this week about correlation versus causation. And they're like, well, what's the difference? And I said, well, correlation is if you have a chain of eight different things, you know, the first thing's kind of connected, the second thing kind of connected, the third thing all the way down. And you try to use that to say the first thing's connected to the last thing. And it probably is. Um, really, causation is when you say the first thing caused the last thing. And you can say that, you know, with, with, you know, definition and make sure that you have data to prove that. So I think the right way to do that is something that, you know, employers have been trying to figure out for a long time. And I think we are at a moment in time where the technology is available to have a single record follow somebody from the first thing all the way through to the eighth thing. And that can be done in an anonymous and private way. So employers never know who these individuals are. But if you think about if you can assess your population so you know who is suffering from financial distress, to what impact does that have on things like depression or anxiety? Um, if you then can start to look at, you know, to what degree is somebody maybe missing more work because of perhaps they're suffering from those things? Um, are they more likely to be associated with um, an error on the job, whether that be spoiled product or uh, you know, a medical error or an accident driving a vehicle, um, you know, starting to look at those things and even detrimental health outcomes, 
related to people that are suffering from chronic distress, whether that be you know prolonged medical pharmacy claims. So for us, as we think about the individual record, being able to show that you know human beings are your most important asset, most companies will say that. Um, but with human beings, you need to be able to help manage that individual and help them thrive um, in order to then cause better outcomes. And by having that single health record, I think we're in a point in time where we can demonstrate that uh, for the first time, which is pretty cool. I would add, I think, to your point, Charles, but how do we start to think about standardizing this? And I think there are a couple of really practical things that organizations can start to do to think about this. Number one, if you've ever been to an HR conference by one of the HR trade associations, about 70% of the content is compliance focused. Virtually none of it is rooted in data analytics. And so I think one of the things to do is to really center data analytics as a core human capital competency, right? Doesn't reside in finance, it doesn't reside anyplace else, but you've got someone who really understands how to leverage and work with data. Because I think you're right, Tim, there's plenty of technology out there. Um, but I think it's not a core competency right now that's often stressed in HR. And so HR is either pulling in resources or they're pulling in from the HRIS systems. Um, and I think if you had that, you would actually see a pretty dramatic change in how benefits are designed, how the data is collected, who owns the data. That's a huge barrier. Um, and so to me, like making data analytics a core HR competency is a first step. And for small businesses, they can work with partners like a True North or others that have that capability you know, externally, but that's got to be a core competency. I think the other, the other piece that has to be here is we actually have a lot of evidence <laughs> of what works. Uh, it's just what people see are frankly, like solution providers that do their own internal tests that say, here is the outcomes we've generated. And I'll give you a story. I, last year I was with a fortune five CHRO. They were evaluating their benefit strategy for last year. And I sat in a room with this person and each of the different sort of HR functions came in and presented on their proposals, the things they wanted to add. And, you know, I was there helping them do some thinking about this. And every person from the health team, from the financial health team, from the overall wellness team, the voluntary benefits team, they all came in and they all cited the same study. Uh, talking about how uh, investments in these things will improve productivity. I was tallying up the net productivity that each of these different things would be. And I looked at the CHR and I said, I said you may have to lay people off because you're going to have like a 190% productivity bump <laughs> uh, based, upon, uh, based upon all these things. And so what it speaks to, and so to me what it speaks to is the industry has to get comfortable testing their solutions in agnostic ways with folks that are willing to provide that feedback. And I think the internal testing, my experience, HR is just kind of over it. It's not a compelling sales pitch anymore because everyone does that and it's not really externally validated. And so as an industry, we need to be more comfortable externally validating and testing interventions um, and then connecting those to the data points that Tim talked about. So to me, it's we have to get comfortable um, really pushing each other um, to do this. And I, and I do give FinFit a lot of credit because I know, Charles, that's one of the things that you and the team really think about is testing your solutions and trying to find ways to test those that aren't just sort of internal or you know extrapolating from these different studies. The third thing I would say is we actually do have existing studies uh, that are rigorous, that give us indications about what works. They are rarely translated to the HR space. And I think there's a real opportunity to also think about how do we bring some of these rigorous tests into the fold. Now, the limitation of those rigorous tests is sometimes they're very narrow. And so it's hard to extrapolate 
um, a very narrow sort of test towards a broader learning, but they're there. And I think we have to be more bold um, about sharing those insights, uh, bringing academic partners into the conversation, and then translating those to tactical, practical actions for HR leaders. So I think those are three things that if we did that as an industry, we would see massive movement um, relatively quickly in terms of scaling financial health and getting to that holy grail you keep going after, Charles, which is <laughs> and I Listen, I champion your efforts to get there. I hope to ride, ride there with you, but we're not there yet. Um, and I think we've got a lot more work to do. Well, they say the sentient beings are numberless, although I vow to save them. Is that the old, you know, it's impossible, but we're going to do it anyway. So let's talk about just real, real brief. You know, what, what are, what are the converse, what are the future conversations that we should be having? Uh, certainly, uh, the gig economy, uh, bubbled up today as an essential conversation. I mean, I, I, I don't know how tight I am on the statistics here, but I think we're looking somewhere around 20 million. Uh, gig economy workers over the next three to five years. And I mean, that's serious. I mean, that's, that's a, you know, literally without a framework. I mean, we're talking about HR leadership. You know, wh where's the framework of HR leadership that's really championing that part of the workforce and is an advocate for that part of the workforce? So I, I, I certainly see that could be a really rich conversation. So let's get that done. Uh, but but what, what other topic areas would you like to see and that, that are meaningful and relevant to your business, but also that you see are just candidly these open-ended challenging questions that HR leaders or CFOs or C uh, CEOs or C-suite folks really are trying to wrestle with regarding financial wellness. And maybe these dynamics are happening in the market, but but maybe even some more enduring topics as well. What, what do you think? You know, HR... <laughs> is busy, right? Uh, at any point in time, and they're not responsible for the profit and loss of the business. And, you know, you look at finance and, you know, they're not responsible for the people strategies. And, you know, big businesses are so siloed that, well, that's not my area. And really thinking about, you know, future topics and how do you knock down those silos and let that data flow through across the organization um, you know, so big organizations might have different divisions that handle different things that should be working together. Small organizations may say, hey, we don't have the resources. So to me, really thinking about, you know, interviews with practical individuals who are in the trenches solving for these things, just to talk about the challenges as well as the victories to me would be extremely valuable. I'm going to riff on that for just a second because I, I, I think it would actually be a really interesting conversation to have a CHRO and a CFO from the same organization and almost have a counseling session, you know, and say, you, you know, and, and really bubble these, you know, you know, how do you begin to marry these really uh, complicated sets of, of not only functions in the company, but, but really being motivated by two different sets of KPIs and, and, you know, and how, how do you really begin to merge those two things into functional relationships? So maybe we could kind of start the CFO, CHRO uh, sort of counseling sessions. And so we do a whole series there. <laughs> how about you, Matt? What do you think we should be covering? Yeah, I think two, two things jump to mind. One, and this is just because I get this question daily from the folks that we work with is just better understanding of the intersections of financial health, overall health, and mental health. Um, and, and I think incumbent upon that is understanding where the employer has the opportunity to make the biggest impact across those three spheres. Um, and I think what we've seen, including some recent research, Harvard just released a study back in 2021 
looking at this where it does appear to be that folks that operate from a place of financial instability just disproportionately have worse outcomes across the, in health, mental health, et cetera. And frankly, employers have the most control over the financial benefits they provide to their people. Um, and so to me, like really focusing in on practicality and what employers uh, can be doing. And it's also fun because I think there's really exciting research happening in psychedelic assisted therapy. Um, and particularly as it relates to mental health, and there's some new companies that are starting to think about how they would provide insurance coverage for some of these treatments. We've already seen it with ketamine-assisted therapy. And to me, that's really relevant because of just the unbelievable outcomes we've seen on mental health, particularly severe depression, severe anxiety, and PTSD, which if you talk to HR leaders, even just from a claims perspective, those are the claims that um, are the hardest for them to reconcile, to solve for, and provide support for. Um, and so to me, like understanding those intersections um, is really important. The other place, and this is more of, I would say, my evolving thinking. And so uh, this may just be a personal map ball passion project, but I think it's really relevant, which is how do we shift the thinking away from people as risks to be managed in a business towards really, if it's the most important asset, you would invest in that asset very differently than how I think it happens today. And that maybe is where the CHRO and CFO uh, therapy sessions flesh some of that out because I don't want to diminish the role of risk. Like, of course that matters, but I'll give you an example. I was at a conference a couple of weeks ago and the head of benefits for a very large, you know, hundred thousand plus company was in there talking and we were having a conversation about this sort of risk framework that often drives a lot of decisions that companies make about investments in their people. And during COVID, they actually took the guardrails off of one of their programs. It was their hardship fund. But I said, hey, we're just going to open this up. We're not going to have any guardrails. We're not going to do it. And this person said something really enlightening to me, which is one of the things we learned is we need to design more for the user and design less for the abuser. And I think that's a really important mind shift change that we need to see more in HR. Design your programs for the users. Don't design them for the abusers. And I think too often the latter happens. And then you hear complaints about low engagement. You hear employee engagement slow and all these things. It's because people feel when they are not valued and when they're treated as a risk, as opposed to treated as a human being with dignity. Um, and there are some intentional things employers can do to flip that. So that, that to me is another area that's new. It's interesting and worth, you know, worth exploring. Excellent. Well, I tell you the, the hour went past very quickly as I suspected it would. And I uh, want to thank you both. I've learned a lot during this session, as I do every time I sit down with you, both individually and now collectively. I, um, I look forward to those future conversations. I, I, I believe as far as this industry has come, we're still in a very nascent stage. I, I think the next decade is really going to be a renaissance in sort of not only understanding financial wellness and stability, its impact on the social determinants of health, and as, as you articulated, Matt, uh, the impact on, on mental health and, and, and what and, you know, the, just the general outcomes when you can focus in on a, on a workplace community and build a f space where individuals and families can flourish. I think there's just a really wonderful opportunity, and I'm, and I'm happy to be working on it with colleagues like you. So thank you so much for the time today and, and look forward to our next conversation. Thanks, Charles. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, guys.